Well, if you have a Bible, I want to talk uh, about one verse in Hebrews chapter 11. If you're visiting us today, it's great to see you. Welcome. hope you feel at home uh, with us. If you've got any questions about anything that's gone on, ask someone in a bright green hoodie. You're going to be really busy this morning, Jean. Uh, or anyone that you see at the front or someone you came uh, with as well. That's absolutely fine. This chapter, Hebrews 11, was written to people who were sort of thinking of giving up on the Christian uh, faith. And it's written as an encouragement for them to keep going uh, with faith. And uh, it's, a, it's a great book. And we've been uh, working through just chapter 11 uh, for some time now. And uh, th- this one verse actually covers, for those that are note takers, it covers Exodus chapter 7 through to 12. That's six chapters. So it's, it's, the, it's the culmination of, of quite, quite a long story, which I'll fill you in on. And the verse, Hebrews 11, verse 28, says this, By faith, he, that's Moses in this case, by faith Moses kept the Passover and the application of blood, I'll explain that in a bit, so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. So it's a verse... Which, if you know the story, makes sense. If you don't know the story, it sounds a bit strange, to be honest. But it's, it's about the Passover, which was when the people of Israel actually became a nation. There'd been a bunch, there'd been a family that went into uh, Egypt hundreds of years before because of famine. They went there just to get food. They were refugees, if you like. But they multiplied there, and these 12 sons became clans. And actually, they're they're nation-sized now. Uh, And because of that, Egypt um, just trod down on them, really, and enslaved them, took away their rights. Uh, But they cry out to God, which is always a good thing to do when you're in a mess. Uh, People criticize that for some reason, don't they? You, You pray to God when you're in a mess. Well, that's a perfectly good time to pray, I'd say. That's a very good response. I think help is one of my favorite prayers. So uh, if you're in a mess, cry help to God. Who better to cry help to? And they did that, and God sent Moses uh, to them. Uh, And we've looked at how he was rescued as a child and so on before. Uh, And he brings about a a miraculous delivery. And this verse is about just the end of of quite a long process or towards the end of that story. And I I just want to talk about God this morning, if that's okay with you. We're in a church, why not? Uh, Let's talk about God. Firstly, I I notice there's a God in this verse, there's a God who intervenes. So it's about Moses, but really it's about God. It's about Moses' faith in God. And he has faith in this God who intervenes. Often when we think of God intervening, we're, we're thinking of our little circumstances, our, our own life, our own personal things. But this is a God who's intervening on a national scale. He's doing something for a whole nation. He's dealing with actually the superpower of the time. He's not a God who's just interested in our circumstances, though he is. He's interested in the big-scale issues as well. And, and here in this story, we've got a God who confronts a world dictator of the time, Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the, the superpower ruler of the time, that they ruled the Middle East at the time. This is a God who humiliates also a powerful false religion of the time. 
the Egyptian. He, he brings down a whole world religion, regional religion of the time. He's a God who's, through this story, going to rescue thousands of people from slavery. It's sort of big-scale stuff because he's a big-scale God. He's a God who's about to transform a bunch of slaves, albeit quite a lot of them, into a nation. That's a remarkable God. That's our God. Often there was a book written a few years ago called Your God is Too Small. I, I like that. Actually, God doesn't change size. It's just our view of him. Often we look, we look at God through, through the keyhole of our circumstances or our experience of him. He's a lot bigger than you think he is, God. He's huge. He's beyond our comprehension. And this is a God who intervenes on the, a world scale with nations with religions, with slavery, nation-making God. And, and this story, I just want to tell the story, is all about the superiority of God. Now, I know that's very non-politically correct, but the God of the Bible is superior. He's unique. He's one of a kind. He's the God, maker of heaven and earth. And, and this verse is about the last of seven plagues. That, that God sends upon a nation and their ruler because they just won't listen to him. And, and there's a, it's, it's just the last of a, a series. And, and the reason he did this, it's stated in, in Exodus, uh, is this. So that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So it's very non-politically correct, but God claims exclusivity. He claims to be the one and only God. I am. I'm the ever-present, one and only God. Submit to me. Now, that, that's very non-20th century, but God's not interested in being fashionable either. He's unchanging the same yesterday, today, and forever. So it's not surprising that sometimes what he says and does doesn't fit with our 17th century, 18th century, 19th century, 20th century, or 21st century view of what's appropriate. He just is God. He does what he wants. The one in heaven does what's right. He's the superior one. And, and, and um, so God sends these plagues. Now, the Egyptians, just to give you a bit of interesting background, had about 80, that's eight zero, different gods. And amongst them, there were different sort of ranks. It's a bit like a pyramid. At the different ranks of God, with some lower down, less important, some household gods. Uh, but uh, and, a, and a hierarchy. And in, in the plagues, I don't know if you've ever read Exodus, but there's quite a few chapters dedicated to these plagues. And you think... Man, this is interesting and dramatic, but it's going on a bit. What, 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 why? Why was it written like that? Well, it was written like that because in these plagues, or all of these plagues uh, sort of bring down one of the Egyptian gods or more. That's the way it's, it's written to demonstrate the superiority of our God. One of them was called Happy. Not H-A-P-P-Y, H-A-P-I. And, and Happy was the god of the river Nile. And the prosperity of Egypt depended on the Nile because there were annual floods which left silt, which meant their fields were incredibly fertile and irrigated. And so they worshipped the Nile, Happy. But one of the plagues, in one of the plagues, the whole river turned to blood, which is a symbol not of life but of death. So they're looking to Happy for life, they get death. It, God is bringing down and putting in, in their place all so-called gods. 
That was his purpose. So they'll know that happy is not a God, I am the Lord. Then there was another one called Hecht, H-E-K-H-T, who was the God, believe it or not, the God who controlled frogs. There you go. If you can't control your frogs, no, don't go there. And what happens was God says, this happy God is no God at all. I will plague your country with frogs. And if you've got an imagination, you can go places. What a plague of frogs looks like. You know, you pull your duvet back, there's frogs. Disgusting. You open your sandwich box, there's frogs. Box of frogs. There's just frogs everywhere. They're in your underwear drawer. They're just in your kitchen. They're, They're just everywhere you go. You open your chariot door, frogs. There's just frogs everywhere, and then they all die, and the place stinks. You think you can control frogs? I'll give you God of frogs. It's God saying, look, these things that you think are wonderful, that you bow down, that you make offerings to, they are nothing compared to me, the true and living God. Some of the Egyptians worshipped the soil of Egypt because it was the source of material wealth and prosperity. And then that very same soil comes alive with gnats, which bring plague. So that, that which they put all their confidence in is brought to nothing. And the, the crops that have grown in that fantastic soil are eaten by locusts. So the land is stripped bare. The sacred bulls that some of them worship are killed off with a plague of, of, of hail and, and, and plague. They're all killed except the people of God. There's a, there's a kept safe. And then, uh, then towards the end, Ra, which was the sun god, he's defeated where that they worship the sun. It's a very hot country, Egypt, of course. And the sun is darkened, and people are groping their way around. And even the sun, that is so reliable, now even that bows before the God of the universe. And the priests of these gods, somewhat comic, I think, anyway, priests of these gods can't even walk around very well because they're covered in boils. So that's all. So they're hobbling around, and it's all, all recorded for us so that the people of God would know he is the Lord and there is no other. All these gods and those who worship them and those who are priests of them are brought low before our Father, the Creator God, who's awesome and almighty and superior in every way. So that's the background to the story. The other bit of background is this God who is so huge and working on an international and national scale is also the God who at the same time knows the condition of every one of our hearts. And and if you read through the story, one of the other big themes is, is, is about the king of Egypt and how God knows what's going on right inside his heart. His deepest thoughts, God knows your and my deepest thoughts. Everything we think and feel is open and bare before him. And we read, as you read through those uh, six chapters, you read, this happened, but Pharaoh didn't take it to heart. This happened, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. After the frogs, he, he relents and says, okay, you can go. And then he, he changed his mind. And it says, he hardened his heart. And then he ate the insects and the flies. But Pharaoh's heart was hard. It's a repeated theme. He will not yield his heart to God. 
And in the end, it's one of the most frightening verses in, in the Bible, Exodus 10, verse 27. In the end, God shuts him up to live in the condition which he'd chosen. And it actually says, God hardened his heart. I, I find that a really scary voice, verse. I don't know about you. Here's a man that won't listen to God, who hardens his heart, won't listen to God, won't believe, won't believe the evidence of his eyes, won't do it, won't do it, almost does it, then says, no, I'm not going to believe, no, I'm not going to turn. He hardens his heart, hardens his heart, and eventually, and I don't know what the tipping point is or was or will be with us, eventually God says, right, that's what you've chosen. That's That's a scary thing, isn't it? I find that frightening. In the end, God, God says, okay, that's what you've chosen. That's what you will choose. That's a, scary, that's a really scary thing. That's why the Bible says in Proverbs 4 verse 23, above everything else, look after your heart. Above everything else, look after your heart. Look after the inside of you. All the signs and wonders, all these miraculous things didn't do Pharaoh any good. Jesus had the same experience. He, he raised the dead, he fed the hungry, he had pity on the poor, he healed the sick, and, and a whole load of people said, yeah, but we don't like you. We, we won't believe. We will not believe. He actually said to some of them, to a, group, a whole town in, in Capernaum, a small town, he said, hey, if the miracles that had been done in you were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have never been destroyed. They, were, they would have repented. He said to Jerusalem, I long to gather you like a mother chick gathers the hens, but you refused to come to me. It's a frightening thing, isn't it? Can I say, above all else, guard your heart. Above everything else, look after your heart. Beware of an unbelieving heart. Beware of the Western, Western European disease of being cynical about everything. That's, that's not because we're brighter than the rest of the world. It's just because we don't believe anything. It's just because our hearts are hard. Be, beware of cynicism. Beware of an unbelieving heart. So here's a God who intervenes, a God who's superior, and yet a God who knows the individual's heart. And this verse, Hebrews 11 verse 28 is about a God who brings actually a terrible judgment. It was the last so-called plague. And God said, I'm going to take the life of every firstborn. I don't know how many of us here have either got a firstborn or are a firstborn, but that's a terrible thing to happen. That's what God said. In order to release this people, in order to form a nation, I'm going to pass over. I'm going to send an angel over the whole nation. And and I, who give life and have the right to take life, will take the life of every firstborn. That was a terrible thing. It's a God of terrible judgment. We don't talk about that very often. We mostly talk about God's love and his grace. But he is a God who's dangerous. Do you know that? God is dangerous. The first books of the Bible sometimes quite, make quite hard reading because, because God is revealing that he is what we call holy, which doesn't mean he's got, sort of got a lighted candle and a halo. It means he's utterly pure, utterly different to us. 
He is creator. We are created. He is utterly pure. We're not. God is holy. And that, that holiness can be dangerous to sinners. That's what the first books of the Bible tend to be about. And they teach us that we can only survive God's judgment if our sin is dealt with. We can't, we can't, we can survive his judgment, but only if our sin is dealt with. And here's the question How can God pass over our sin? How, how can he say, Oh, you're all right? Oh, you're all right? How can he do that when we know that we're full of failings? We make mistakes. How can he do that? Well, God provides a sacrifice. That's what he does. The story is all in, written in Exodus 12. He, he provides what, he called, what became called a Passover lamb. And God gives specific instructions, which Moses, because he believes God, puts his trust in. That's what this verse is about. It's about Moses' faith. Moses says, okay, I believe you, God. I believe that you're holy. I believe that you're going to come in judgment. I believe that you to- what you told me to do will work. And so he says to the people, he not only believed, but he taught a whole nation to believe. And they sacrificed a lamb. And they had to get a paintbrush of some herbs. And they had to paint this, some of the blood of the lamb on the tops of the door and the, uh, the doorposts. A bit quite a vivid picture, isn't it? And because they've acted in obedience and put their faith in this sacrifice, they're, they're trusting God that when, when the angel of judgment comes over, God will look on the sacrifice and say, that the sin of, of this family, if you like, has been placed on the lamb, and the lamb has been judged instead of us. That's, that's what they were doing. And they will pass over, and judgment won't strike that family. Moses put his faith in that sacrifice. Do you get the story? I mean, it must have been a scary night, wasn't it? Imagine you and your, your family that particular night. You're there. Something terrible is going to happen. You've had all these plagues. Moses says, get packed. We're going. Keep your shoes on. Put on your outdoor coats. Put your sandals on. We're going to have a, a, a meal. It's going to be roast lamb. But what you've got to do is this. You've got to kill the lamb because sin is always punished. He's a holy God and he's teaching us that right at the start of becoming a nation. This God is a holy God. He's a dangerous God, although he's a loving God and wants to set us free. And so you kill the lamb and you watch your your dad or your mum paint the doorposts and then you wait, trusting that this will work. Because he's not done it before. You're trusting that the lamb will save you and that God's judgment will pass over you. What a terrible night. And that must have been, even on Moses, Prince of Egypt, the cartoon, it's quite scary. (laughs) I like that film. Quite good. And God comes in judgment and there was weeping throughout a nation because the firstborn's life was taken by the God who gave it. So that Egypt would know there is a God in heaven who rules all. But this, this God who is a God of judgment is also the God who provides the Passover. And so, and so the nation, we'll, we'll look at more of that in future weeks. The nation it becomes a nation 
and they start their travels towards a, a nation and a land of their own because of this God. And that, that whole event is still commemorated, isn't it, by, by Jewish people in the Passover meal. It's also celebrated, funnily enough, by us. Tables at the back and the front most weeks with bread and wine because this is what happens. There was a certain Passover at the end of Jesus' earthly life. And, and throughout the centuries, the Jewish people had a solemn commemoration of this event because it's when the nation was born. It's when God rescued them. And they would have a special meal, still do have a special meal, that roast lamb. And there comes a point, there's a cup of wine and there's, there's bread. And because this was a, a solemn occasion, usually the bread was eaten in silence. A bit like sometimes we have national events, don't we? And we have a two-minute silence in remembrance. And this was a remembrance meal. And they would, the bread would be passed around and they would eat it in silence just Remembering the time when, when a holy God had mercy on them, when they became a people. And, and so th- there's 12 disciples and there's Jesus and he gives the bread and the, that, they've got this silence going on to remember that past deliverance. And, and Jesus interrupts the silence and he says, this, by the way, this is my body. I don't know if you can imagine being there. You've always re- looked back. And Jesus says, this isn't then, this is now. This is me. And this cup that you drink, this isn't that lamb, this is this lamb and his blood. That was an awesome, just, just, I feel tingly even talking about it. What a moment, if you could, depending on your imagination, if you could imagine being there, they always look back. They're brought up looking back. They've had 20, 30 years of looking back, remembering that time all through their lives. And suddenly Jesus breaks all the rules and interrupts the silence and said, hey, yes, there was a lamb, but that lamb's just a picture of me. He paints himself as the Passover lamb who's giving his life so that a holy God can pass over you and me. It's awesome, isn't it? It's just wonderful. This is my body. This is my blood. You see, Jesus is our Passover lamb. When Paul was writing to the Corinthians, he says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. They, they would have understood. We've had to tell a whole story. They would have just understood it just like that. So Peter does the same in 1 Peter 1, verse 18. It wasn't with perishable things like silver or gold you were rescued from your empty way of life. But it was with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Christ is our precious, perfect, defect-free lamb. And he rescues us from terrible judgment. Have you put your faith in his sacrifice for us? What, what will, put it like this, what will protect you from a holy God who ultimately will be dangerous? It's appointed, the Bible says, it's appointed for us to live and then to die and after death the judgment. Ooh, it's a bit heavy. No, it's just normal. It's just what happens. What will protect us? It's Jesus who rescues us from a terrible judgment. It's Jesus. We can be passed over because of his sacrifice. We place our faith in him. 
Have you done that? If you haven't, you could do it this morning. You could say, God, if you're really holy, I need some protection. If you're really as holy, if you're really righteous, if there really is a judgment to come, then I need your mercy. And I can't put my reliance in my own performance. I've got to put my reliance on Jesus, who said, I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'll take the punishment. What do we have to do? Well, we have to put our metaphorical paintbrush in him and say, over the door of my life, I'm trusting Jesus. Over the door of my life, I'm inviting you, God, to pass over me, not because I'm right, but because he is righteous. And I'm trusting in him. We've got to place our faith in him. Well, our, our time's up. What's the so what? I, I just, I've just got three. Don't, let's not be intimidated about big world events. Let's not be intimidated by world powers, terrorists, other gods, other religions. God, God's, the Bible says, he who sits in heaven can laugh. That's because he knows the end from the beginning. We, we can't laugh. We have times of laughing, times of crying. He who sits in heaven can laugh. Not because he doesn't care, but he, he knows what's happening. Let's not be intimidated. This God can bring false religions down. He can raise up nations. He can bring down nations. Where's the Egyptian empire now? Where's the Roman empire? Where's the Greek empire? For that matter, where's the British empire? Empires come, empires go. Only he remains on the throne. Let's not be intimidated. Secondly, please take care of your heart. Take care of your heart. I don't know whether what's in your heart. I don't know whether there's bitterness, unforgiveness, unbelief, cynicism. I don't know. I couldn't cope with it if you told me. I don't know, but God knows. Take care of your heart. Bring what's in your heart to him. If it's a mess, ask him to clear it up. If it's unforgiveness, ask him to help you forgive. If it's you needing forgiveness, ask him to forgive you. Take care of your heart. Keep it sensitive to the Lord and guard it above all else. And thirdly, let's rely on Jesus. Everything else falls away. Everything else you can put your trust in ultimately will fail. You've got great friends, I'm pleased for you. Sooner or later you'll find out that they can't be there for you. You trust in your health, well, that comes, comes and goes. I wish you good health for the rest of your life. But there is the rest of your life and most people don't die healthy. You get what I mean. <laughs> at least at the end, <laughs> you're, not, you're looking a bit peaky. <laughs> Whatever, whatever we've got, you've got your savings, well, inflation will decrease those. You, whatever you trust in. Got, got stuff in your house, well, that could be being nicked right now. Who knows? I don't know. <laughs> so, let's finish with some encouragement. <laughs> I've been watching too many detective programs. <laughs> but you get what I'm saying, don't you? That brand spanking car, you'll prang it sooner or later. Someone will get you in a car park, they'll open their door. You know, you know what happens. What, what can we trust in? Rely on Jesus. Rely on his shed blood. They said, hey, I'm the Lamb of God. This body is for you. And we're going to ha- finish now with breaking bread, drinking uh, the juice. It's just a memorial. It's not magic. But as we eat it and drink it, I want to invite you to take uh, part. If you're trusting in Jesus or you want to trust in Jesus, then, then take some bread and say, You're my sacrificial lamb. I'm trusting you that this 
holy, holy God has demonstrated his love for us. His love for us. He's demonstrated it in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's a great verse, isn't it? God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us. So take a good hunk of bread, 